Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Seven. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And James here. Big episode today. Big time. We are doing David Fincher's Seven, which we've talked about a few times. We brought up the first time a long time ago, episode 17, we did our Serial Killers episode, and we did that like Talented Mr. Ripley, Silence of the Lambs, and a couple others. And then we did a David Fincher director spotlight. 16 hours. It was like a 37-hour <laughs> episode. Talked about it then. Back to back, it was two episodes. But we've yeah. never done a solo episode on it, and I'm very excited to talk about this. This is in... I think this is one of the greatest films of all time. It was released in 1995, directed by David Fincher, written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It's an 8.6 on IMDb. It's number 19 on the IMDb user all-time wow. greatest movies list. Ron Tomatoes, it's an 82% critics. <laughs> and then audience score, it's 95%. It's a perfect movie. It is a masterpiece. It's arguably the greatest procedural detective movie of all time, arguably the best serial killer of all time. It's up there, Silence of the Lambs. And I think it's just flawless execution. Some of the best directing you'll ever see in a movie. And I, it's David Fincher's. It could be his best between that and Fight Club for me. But I am just blown away every time this I see this movie. I've seen it like ten times, and every time I watch it, I'm still like, feels like I'm watching it for the first time. I've seen it like I think twenty five times. It's a lot. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like, there's something wrong with me. I've probably seen it more than ten, but and I, I like to describe. I think it's a wonderful movie. <laughs> a wonderful movie. <laughs> there's something wrong with me. It's a laugh riot. <laughs> Africa. Oh, Africa. <laughs> wonderful in terms of the the technicality of it the the craftsmanship on display the acting the screenplay i think it i really think this is one of the best screenplays of the last um several few decades it's, i think it's just a phenomenal story it's so original it's such a great take on a serial killer if it wasn't for hannibal lecter in silence of the lambs i mean i would put john doe as my my number one serial killer in film history even above you know, movies like Psycho and, and a few others. And about Tom Ripley. Above Tom? Above Tom Ripley, yeah. yeah. Above Tom Ripley. But, um, and I love the genre of serial killer movies. I th- Obviously, everyone's fascinated with true crime nowadays. I mean, number one show on Netflix is the John Wayne Gacy documentary, right? It's the tapes. It's like his recordings. I'm like, I don't want to listen to that. There's another one where it's just like a serial killer dramatization TV show yeah. too. But it's just like serial killers have been a fascination of pop culture for two decades now. Yeah, and I love the genre in film. But as you said earlier, you, you pointed out Silence of the Lambs. I think that as many good films have been made in the genre, it's only those two, Silence of the Lambs. And seven, and I feel like Psycho doesn't really count because it's not um, a police procedural. I'm so, so you I'm, mean police procedural, serial killers? serial killers, yeah, investigative. I, what about um, 
Prisoners. I would say Prisoners is up there if you classify the kill. I won't spoil it. If you I suppose seen it. so. The but killer I... in that movie is a serial killer. Yeah, I suppose Police so. procedural, yeah. I think, is the closest thing we've gotten to Seven or the best thing since Seven in terms of investigative films. That's a great point. That's, that's a really good point. I still would put these two up. Above prisoners. No, I think they're peg. both better than prisoners, yeah. but I think it's like the closest thing so far. That's a, that's an excellent line, but that's point. That's been thirty-seven years. Prisoners is the closest thing. Years. Prisoners is the closest thing to seven that we've gotten to seven in terms of not showing their gratuitous nature or disturbing qualities, but in terms of investigation, a fascinating crime drama. So I agree with you. I think Prisoners is right up there, but I think Sounds of the Lambs and, and Seven are just really special movies, and Seven. It really played a big part in David Fincher's rise in Hollywood. You know, we all know that Alien 3, his first feature film, went horribly, performed horribly, and he actually vowed to never make a movie again after that experience. And so he took three years off and went back to making music videos. And he was a very successful music video director. He was making videos for like David Bowie, Madonna, like some of the biggest um, musicians alive. And so he got this script and made the masterpiece of Seven, and because of Seven's, not just its critical reception, but also it was extremely successful at the box office for its budget. It made well over $200 million, very successful movie, widely talked about among all sorts of people from ages. It, it won like empty movie... MTV Movie Awards for what, Best Kiss, uh, <laughs> something. Just kidding, no... <laughs> but like to, to be a critically acclaimed movie and then reach a young audience as well, that's, that's kind of a rare thing. And so the success... The overall success of Seven allowed Fincher to build his career because off of Seven's success, he went to Sony with Fight Club and was like, I want $90 million to make Fight Club. Give me Final Cut. That's how I'm doing it. Well, he did the game after this, right? Yeah. It was the game 1997? The game was before Fight Club. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so 1997. But, this, but Seven was it. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? And ironically, he was accidentally sent the wrong script for Seven. Fincher only took the job because he got sent the script with the head-in-the-box ending which is the alternate ending. And right now, I want to give a couple warnings and spoiler stuff. So we're going to give you a warning. This is a rated R film that deals a lot with serial killer and killing. So it's got graphic nature, and we'll obviously be referencing these graphic scenes in this episode. So if that's disturbing to you, you might want to you know, just give you a heads up that we will be bringing stuff up in the film that's graphic. And also, it's a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen this film, I mean, it's 27 years old. Everyone knows the references. Everyone knows who the serial killer is at the end of the film, the big reveal and everything. So it's and it's impossible to really talk about this film in great detail without knowledge of the ending. So this is a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Seven, highly recommend go watching it ASAP and then coming back to this episode. But I'm sure everyone tuning in has listened to it. And anyways, now before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast besides using our coupon codes is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts in the show, and weekly bonus episodes that every patron has access to and our $10 and $25 tier patrons also get access to our discord where we have watch parties and communicate and interact with you on all every single day our 25 dollars godfather tier patrons also get their own custom personalized episode you pick the topic the movie whatever you want us to talk about we'll make an episode just for you we also launched our podcast masterclass online course last year so for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast just use our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course to give you all the secrets behind the scenes of the show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. 
Com. It's right there on the homepage. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world, wherever you're listening, watching, in the car, at the gym, on a walk, at home, in the living room, wherever. Thank you so much. Hit the notification bell. Leave those five-star reviews. Now let's get into seven. So Dave Fincher got sent the, the wrong script. He got the script that got turned into the movie with the box in the head at the end. The real studio, the, the real ending that the studio wanted was a race against the clock to save Tracy's life. Also another version, Somerset shoots John Doe at the end. And I think they chose the best ending because there's no way Mills wouldn't have killed John Doe for what he did to Tracy, obviously. And I think this is just the more interesting story and plot for the film to go. It's just the most shocking ending imaginable. For real. so unexpected. And this is a movie we grew up watching as kids, obviously, because we, we tell you all oftentimes our older brothers showed us movies we weren't allowed to see. We watched this all the time when we were kids. So I believe I grew up already knowing the twist, although not really understanding the movie because I was so young, but then like understanding the twist. And so it's a movie that I would love to see if like I could get a clean slate from memory mm-hmm. and watch it over again. Because I'm sure for audiences and theaters, when they saw this movie and that ending happened, it was probably the most unpredictable thing that could have possibly happened in that moment for the story. Yeah, and Seven, we all know the story. It's about two detectives, a rookie played by Brad Pitt and a veteran played by Morgan Freeman, hunt down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives and also for his markings of the kinds of murders he commits. Now, the seven deadly sins are gluttony. Gluttony is described as excessive eating, drinking, and indulgence. Covers also greed. Some faith traditions clearly label it as a sin, while some others just discourage or prohibit gluttony. Greed, a desire for material wealth or gain, ignoring the realm of spirituality. Sloth, sloth has been defined as failure to do things that one should do, though the understanding of the sin is antiquity was that in antiquity was this laziness or lack of worth was simply symptom of vice of apathy or indifference, particularly in apathy or boredom with God. So it's not like you're sitting around on a couch all day. It's just like you refuse to act. That's more of like uh, the the older term of sloth. It's not like a mm-hmm. sloth, like the animal. <laughs> Uh, pride <laughs> is considered the original. John most... Doe just kills sloths. Yeah. <laughs> is considered the pride is considered the original and most serious of the seven deadly sins on almost every list. It's an excessive belief in one's own abilities. Also means vanity, like in the film. Lust is the dis- disordered desire for the disordered desire for or inordinate amount in enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Envy, characterized by the insatiable desire like greed and lust, it can be described as a sad or resentful covetousness towards the traits or possessions of someone else. It arises from vainglory and severs a man from his neighbor. And finally, wrath can be defined as uncontrolled feelings of anger, rage, and even hatred. Wrath often reveals itself in the wish to seek vengeance. Excellent rundown of the list. Thanks, pal. And you know, these are all things, these are moral conundrums that I'm sure all cultures have different ideas about and different interpretations of you know this is just like the seven deadly sins written in this book in particular but there are other interpretations of these kinds of behaviors yeah and obviously they're in the old writings and works of like the divine comedy paradise lost by john milton which uh these books are referred to in the movie obviously and what's interesting about uh, the seven deadly sins is if you compare it to something like the ten commandments which is the same idea But in terms of the Ten Commandments, it's more actions that are forbidden, whereas the seven deadly sins are more, you could say, feelings or intentions or internal struggles that people have uh, of dealing with and overcoming. And these things can lead to committing 
the crimes or acts of forbidden nature. Now, the seven deadly sins also have seven opposing virtues. They are chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. And I like to think when I watch this movie that the main characters, specifically Tracy, Mills, and Somerset, combined have all of these seven virtues of heavenly virtues to oppose the seven deadly sins of John Doe. But they're all guilty of them as well. Exactly. You could say yeah. that Mills is guilty of pride. You could say that Somerset, he's guilty of... What would he be guilty of? Well, the thing with Su- Somerset is he's... Because he's, he's a nihilistic man. Mm-hmm. Um, envy, you could say envy for... A better his, world. A better world, and also envy maybe for his 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 um younger self, mm-hmm. the who man he used to be. He like wishes he was. He's jealous that people. I think he's envious that he can't think the way most other people can, and just let things be without wanting to run away yeah, from the world. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. But it, the uh, seven deadly sins are the reason, or or what motivates John Doerr. Not necessarily motivates it, but it's his style it's of his killing. Tool. You know, he's used it as his sermon in a way to give his sermon to the world, and his his way to preach is by committing the murders of these people. Each person commits one of the seven deadly sins, and he kills them in the style of the seven deadly sins as well. Yeah, and he's using this as he says a calling from a higher power. But I think that, ironically, as immature he can be, Mills, he kind of hits the nail on the head in terms of John Doe is ultimately seeking fame, I would say, and uh, great amounts of attention. And he, I think he wants to live on as a legend and a mythical f- figure like the figures that he reads in these ancient texts. John Doe is a really interesting character because he believes himself to be righteous. He, in, in spite of the fact of his horrific sins, he believes that he was chosen by a higher power to carry out the acts he does. He's trying to create hell on earth, basically. What's so interesting about him is, you know, evil wins in this movie. Evil dies tonight. Evil, evil dies tonight. tonight. Evil wins in this film. <laughs> we always look to burn your Halloween kills. Anthony loves when a villain or a baddie wins at the end of the movie. I yeah, think I it's always it, yeah. so fun and interesting. And the fact that the serial killer pulls off what he was trying to accomplish, it's really interesting. And, you know, I like movies that don't have a typical happy Hollywood ending. You know, the movie ends with a head in the box and, <laughs> and a murder. It's crazy. And... The fact that John Doe spent so much time planning this and, and he's one of the most fascinating serial killers in, in cinema history. And he thinks he's he thinks he's this like prophet like figure, but like Somerset when he's confronting him inside the car, he's like, You seem to take so much pleasure in what you're doing, you seem to enjoy it. And John Doe, he actually like is stumped for a second, but he he ca- he stoically answers this. He's nothing, very smart. There's yeah. nothing wrong with taking pleasure in your work. But he's kind of in a way delusional to the fact that thinking he's like this prophet maybe he is who knows we don't know maybe he is like a prophet for satan or he is satan but the fact that he still is just a man he's not satan but he's clouded with this thought that he is but it's just interesting that he's kind of a contradiction of himself and also hold on real quick going back to the sins i would say that tracy is slightly guilty of sloth yeah because she's choosing not to look for work choosing to stay at home and choosing not to you know work in these impo- impoverished schools so she is kind of guilty of slot although she's still by far the most innocent character in the film and in terms of serial killer movies m- movies that deal with murder in general 
you would think they'd be in general like very violent heavy but this movie has almost no violence at all despite the fact that there are you know horrific crime scenes of murders there is a um, obviously murder on screen but there's really only two violent acts in the movie it's when john doe hits mills and breaks his arm on to- in that alleyway and then when mills shoots john doe aside from that we don't see any of the murders we just see the aftermath and what we see is just snippets of crime scenes you never really see the full thing together in just one large wide shot very seldom but we get a lot of little quick shots of what's going on in these crime scenes until we get the fuller clear picture and when we do it's usually very brief and sometimes we don't even see the crime scene for example the one with the, the lust the yeah. lust one with the prostitute and the man who is forced to penetrate the woman with that crazy like knife sh- strap on we don't even see what ha- what she looked like in the scene because it's probably too horrific to show on camera. And even that, it's such a brilliant shot, but it's still one of the most gut-wrenching moments of the film. All you see are, uh, it's from the back of Somerset, Somerset's head, the shot, and then on each corner of the frame um, for the rest of the space of the room, you can see her feet on the end of the bed and then her head at the top of the bed, and there's blood splattered. And that's it. But mostly the frame is covered by Somerset's silhouette. And what does Fincher do? He Instead of showing the scene, he cuts to the picture, the Polaroid of the uh, creation. But then also in the scene, he shows the reactions of the other characters uh-huh. and how stressed they are. Yeah. And that show, that's just that's just great directing. But the, the entire idea of not showing the violence, not showing the, the kills ta- taking place, it adds so much great mystery and intrigue and fear in the audience we don't see john doe doing anything we don't even know john doe if, if john doe is uh what they look like who they are like if it's one person or multiple and it's we are in the same situation as like when somerset says if a ufo came out of his head i want you to be ready for it and if he's uh, satan himself he might live up to it because that that's how the audience feels because we haven't seen him we have no idea what this person is like and because of the heinous acts that this person is committing they are the most terrifying villain that we have not even seen yet. And when a great reveal takes anticipation and it requires uh, building up the moment and the like a great way to reveal a character is having other characters speak about that person in some way to build excitement for the audience to see them. Uh, this film in particular spends an hour doing that, a little bit more. And it's not just characters talking about it, but we're seeing what this person is doing and how they're affecting the world around them. And it's so powerful and disturbing and just destructive to the world that we don't even want to see the reveal of this person by the end. There's so many reveals in this movie, and it's just such great directing, not even of just characters, but for example, we were just talking about the lust crime scene. So Somerset Mills, they go to that fabrication shop, the leather shop. They found the receipt in John Doe's apartment, and they're like, you made this for him? The audience doesn't get to see the photo yet. He shows them the Polaroid. They take it. Then they're at the crime scene, and then it cuts to the interrogation rooms, and that's when we see the Polaroid. Like I said, we don't even see the crime scene of what happened. We just see the the image of the Polaroid is the reveal, and it's just as probably, probably more shocking and powerful than if they showed the body of the woman. And also another great reveal like that at a crime scene is when Mills is on his own at his new crime scene. It's the murder of the, greed. Def- the, of the yeah. defense attorney, the greed, uh, Eli Gould. And we don't know really what happened. He's like walking to this building. The commissioner, it seems like, is having an interview and saying that this is all the information we have, basically. And Mills gets into the apartment and he sits back in the chair and he just seems like he's so overwhelmed. He tells all the forensics guys, forensics guys to leave the room. 
And then he's just like, then he stands up and he's walking around. He, he seems so lost and he has no idea what to do. And then it cuts to that wide shot of greed written in blood on the ground and Eli Gould's body face down. So like things like that, where you don't show the audience immediately what's happening. You, you save it for as long as you can because it makes it that much more powerful. Yeah, it's all about building the anticipation, like I said earlier, and getting the reactions of characters of what they're reacting to first, and then we finally see what they're reacting it's to. Fincher's great style. Yeah. How many directors would show you like right away, oh, greed's on the floor Greed, and blood. Super cut of, of all the images. It's like when we talked dragon about tattoo. Dragon Tattoo, yeah. the, the reveal, you do that great bit where you talk about the reveal of Elizabeth Salander, where you see the reactions of the people in the office before we even see her face, and just her reactions are a great way to set up. And then we finally see Elizabeth's makeup and, and, and aesthetic, and you're like a little shocked and taken aback, but by holding on that suspense it just builds so much power and emotion for when the reveal happens yeah he does that a lot in the game as well and also in the the flower reveal scene and the dragon tattoo in the opening act it's just a great way to build suspense and also in this film the reveal of the the hands and the the barbed wire hands the wired hands of the, the man in, in the ankles the in the opening man, man yeah, in the opening scene yeah. that's another win one where we wait for the reveal because they're trying to figure out, is this a homicide? Is yeah, it not? Exactly. But that's just great directing, and that's why David Fincher is one of the best there is on the planet Earth. Speaking of directing, so I think that, obviously we all know that David Fincher is one of the best working today, but I think that one of his strengths, and possibly his greatest strength, is his ability to create tone and mood. And this is an example of that. The, the tone of this movie and the mood of the movie really sets it apart from most other films. And I'm talking everything from the music to the sound design to the cinematography, to the, the pacing, uh, the, the way it's framed, the way the blocking of the actors is, and the feeling that you get when you watch the movie. That's what it is. It's when you watch this movie, I don't know what it is about. I mean, there's so many other great movies that have great cinematography and all the other things, attributes I mentioned, but when I watch Seven, I can't stop looking at the frames and I can't stop examining what the actors are doing and I can't stop analyzing everything. And it's because of how precise he is as, as a director is everything is intentional and everything is perfectly crafted and in the mood but the mood of this movie is really what makes it i mean i think the sound design is one of the strengths of the film it's amazing because he really built this world the city of this this world that the city that this world set in we don't know where it is we don't know what city it is it's undefined and he actually filmed in different locations to make the city feel bigger and to prevent you from recognizing different things. cities. Yeah. I recognized a couple of shots in L.A. that I've seen yeah, in yeah, L.A. Yeah, a couple. But then they shot in like Pennsylvania. They shot in New York. And he wanted to make it feel like you don't know. It could be any city. And it's not just that just also that builds one aspect of it. But then the sound design, I think, really adds so many layers to the film. Because, uh, for example, whenever you're in Somerset's home, especially in the opening act, the opening scene when he's in his apartment. What do you hear? You hear cars, you hear people screaming, you hear also you see you hear chaos in the background oftentimes and uh, the the layers of audio in the city scenes really feel realistic to a crowded city an overrun city. Uh, I think that a lot of filmmakers don't put as much attention to detail in the audio as they should. Fincher has always put great audio in his in his films and also the dialogue is He's very much like Nolan, where most of the dialogue is not dubbed. He hates dubbed. He wants to try and capture the audio in cam in the, on the day of shooting. <clears throat> and so you'll see moments where it doesn't sound perfect in terms of someone saying a line or a word, but it's if you hear an echo. Oftentimes, other filmmakers, they don't want to hear an echo or a bounce. They want it to feel 
like how we speak. They want it to sound like that every time an actor speaks. But Fitcher's like, no, I want to get into the realism of the moment. I want people, the audience to feel like they're in this room. And so the sound design of the film is one of the most understated aspects of what people talk about. And I think it's a very important reason why the mood works. I 100,000% agree. 100,000. 100,000%. And another underrated aspect of the film that I think helps with this mood and this tone is the absolutely incredible and precise, meticulous attention to detail in this film, whether it be the production design, sets, props, wardrobe of characters, characterizations, nonverbal things like that. It's it's an enormous amount of detail in every shot, every scene, whether it be, you know, inanimate things and objects like set design, production design, obviously John Doe's apartment is the most intriguing, so much detail, so many little things. Even all those journals, every single one of those journals was filled out by humans, by people. Every even, even though they opened a couple of them up, people wrote in every single one of those journals to fill the pages because even though it's not opened in the movie, you don't see shots of them all, it helps with the mood. It helps with the tone. It helps the actors get into the scene, get into the world, get into the heads of the characters so much more. But the attention to detail is everywhere. For example, one of the... It's a, it's a joke that most people probably miss, but Mills pours Somerset this enormous glass of wine when they're like going through the evidence at the Mills apartment. And it's later in the scene, Mills looks at the glass. He's like, what the hell is this thing? It's yeah. like 12 ounces of wine in a tall glass. That's be- It's behavior. Yeah, yeah because, because it's attention to detail yeah, too. Because Mills has probably never drunk wine before. He doesn't know how strong it is. So he's pouring it thinking it's a beer because yeah. he's drinking PBRs. And so obviously this character... It's so well fleshed out, and the director and actor understand it so him so well that he wouldn't even know how much wine is appropriate to drink. And then Mills is a great example. Brad Pitt does so much in this movie. It's so subtle. It really it shows off how talented he is. He's not just a movie star. He's not just a pretty face. He's extremely talented. And you can tell how much precision and care he put into the performance because in every shot, he's doing things that I'm sure he did rep- re- repetitiously every take. And a great example is the morning when he wakes up and uh, he's getting up. He doesn't want to wake Tracy up. It's a simple scene of him. Uh, it, it, I'm sure on the page, it's Mills wakes up, puts on his tie, the phone rings, he answers it, and then he says goodbye to Tracy. But there's so much action in terms of what he's doing physically. He carefully gets up. He bumps into something. He doesn't want to wake Tracy, Tracy up. He he throws on a tie that Tracy obviously tied for him because he doesn't know how to tie a tie. He just puts on pre-tied ties, rolls it up. His his shirt's all wrinkly, and then the phone rings, and he, he, he doesn't just answer it. He quickly gets there just to prevent it from ringing, ringing to waking her up, answers it as quickly as possible, and then whispers into it. And then when he and Tracy say goodbye, she's rubbing his eye, crushed out of his eye, and then Gwyneth, Gwyneth plays a great person who just woke up. She sounds like she just woke up. It's it's just great character behavior and attention to detail in every single scene that really makes you feel like, this is really happening. If you don't want to be a victim of sloth, then you might want to get your hands on the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer from Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout to get 20% off and free shipping worldwide because John Doe is going to come for you if you're just being sloth about your hygiene. Also, get the Ultra Premium Collection, which is the ultimate wet goods bundle, which includes deodorant, yes, deodorant from Manscaped, body wash, two-in-one shampoo conditioner, hydrating body spray, and a free set of Manscaped lip balm. Manscaped's 
awesome products are turning your day-to-day routine into being the perfectly groomed guy in your life for your significant others or just for yourself. Now, they're turning your shower routine into the best part of your day with their wet goods bundle and the lawnmower 4.0 groomer. This thing is like a rocket ship for your grooming needs. It's got a 7,000 RPM motor. It's got a wireless charger, a, a goddamn lights on it. You can just think in the shower. It's waterproof. It's crazy. It's insane. Their boxer briefs are super comfortable. Two t-shirts are super comfy. Go to manscaped.com. Get all your stuff from there for your grooming needs. Take care of yourself. Don't be a sloth. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You get 20% off and free shipping today. Or else John Doe's coming for you. For all you fans of movie posters, there's only one place to get yours, and that's at movieposters.com, the number one place for posters online. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Movieposters.com has a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their arsenal they also have all sorts of poster sizes framing backlighting whatever your poster needs are they got you covered you know them movieposters.com our coupon code is raiders10 use it today and get 10 percent off your order and a lot of attention to detail in this movie doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. It's just to help immerse you into this world, into this movie. I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this film is it's so immersive. One of my favorite little things of detail that has nothing to do with plot, nothing to do with character or anything, is when Mills and Somerset, they're waiting for the fingerprint analysis to come back. And the guy's like, you guys might want to wait outside because I've seen this thing take three days. So they're getting on the couch. They're having this little conversation before they both pass out. And Mills lays, starts to lay down on the cushion. And immediately he smells the ashtray next to him. He's like, oh. And he overreacts like immensely. Like, he's, like, <laughs> he's like, oh, it's nasty. So he, he pushes the ashtray away from him so that he can sit down and lay down. Why does the director even put that there? For the character, why not just have him lay down with no, no no boundary or no speed bump in the way? It's just because they want to create a real environment. Stuff like this happens in everyday life where you you, you drop your milk or something or a glass of coffee. You, you you smell this thing and you push it away. So it's just like little tiny things like that have nothing to do with plot, nothing really to do with character, but it helps immerse you into the world. Exactly. That's a, that's a wonderful way to, to um, phrase it. And the strength of this film using that is – not only are the scenes meticulously choreographed, these are all, it's all not all improvised. We all know Fincher is a guy who will do 50 takes of a scene to get it right, of one shot. And the actors have to do every performance meticulously to his direction. And so you combine the choreography and the specific movements and interactions of all the actors and their behaviors with very long takes. There are a lot of long takes in this film and they kind of are are hidden you don't really notice them because you're so immersed like you said into the scenes like the first like that interaction with mills and somerset their first one outside walking on the sidewalk that's one take it's a minute and a half longer than talking maybe two minutes so much happens in terms of the the situation and what they speak about but it's all one take that cop the handoff coffee shot is one take john doe arriving outside the police station is one take there are so many uh 40 second to like 70 second shots, which are very long for a movie. The movie averages probably 2.5 to 3 seconds for every cut. And so that's a lot of cutting in every movie. And so for a film, the average shots that are well over 30 seconds is a rarity. Some more examples of intense attention to detail with characters 
include Anthony was talking about the apartment that the Mills live in their bedroom, and he, he knocks that he bumps into that thing. He's got that tie that he probably wears every day. It's the same tie, it's just hanging on the hook, already pre-done. Mills has like a wrinkly shirt that he wears all the time. He doesn't even wear a suit jacket. He wears that leather jacket first instead of a suit jacket. And then you counter him with Somerset when Somerset wakes up. You know, he's almost this militaristic man where everything's folded perfectly. I love on his bureau, he gets ready, he's got a pen, a knife, and a gun. They're just perfectly straight in order. You know, the three mightiest things that he uses in his life. And also he uses the metronome to sleep. And that helps him just try to drown out the noise. But I think just all this information is being told to us subtly. If you're watching closely, you can really get the characterizations of each person. And it's really effective, I think, and just helps the audience so much. His desk is also like that, too. When Mills comes in to take over the desk, Somerset's desk is already perfect. And so not not much has to be changed at all other than Somerset taking up some files in his jacket off the chair. And then it's basically Mills' desk because... If you look at the pencils, they're perfectly ordered, and everything on the desk is in perfect order as well. So uh, that's the difference between the characters you can see blatantly right away. And this is one of Howard Shore's, I think, most underrated scores. Obviously, his Lord of the Rings scores are his most played all over the place on every platform. Whenever you click on his profile, it's just like 30 <laughs> Lord of the Rings songs for yeah. his most played. But I think he's his some of his best are Silence of the Lambs and... Seven, they're very underrated. They sound kind of similar, lots of brass and stuff like that. That's the style. And also, yeah. it kind of sounds like Cape Fear at times. And I think it's just really effective. It creates this this eerie atmosphere he does with a lot of the, the sound, and especially the high climactic moments. He really gets your heart rate jacked up with what's going on in the film. Like, the police raid is a very high-octane moment. He's got the brass going, and it's like, you know, this is a big moment. The foot chase, which I think is the best foot chase I've ever seen in a movie, probably. It's absolutely amazing when Mills and Somerset are chasing down John Doe after they arrive at his apartment. But I think Howard Shore is just such an underrated composer out there. It's a, obviously, everyone thinks of John Williams, Hans Zimmer, people like that, but how Howard Shore is a legend. And his score creates so much anxiety. It's like this pulsating rhythm of brass and strings, and it slowly gets louder and louder and louder and faster until the climactic moments of these scenes. And I think it perfectly suits the film, and it makes a lot of the scenes better. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are also excellent in this movie. Their characters couldn't be more opposite but you can imagine or i like to imagine that maybe one day a long time ago somerset was very much like mills you know mills is this hot shot he just got here he fought his, his way to get to the city and and somerset can't understand why somerset ha he's on his way out he's got one week left until he retires he's very nihilistic he doesn't understand the world anymore it's sort of like uh, No Country for Old Men, the, the Tommy, Lee Tommy Lee character, Jones yeah. character in that sort of where he doesn't understand what's happening. And he doesn't get the he doesn't get humans anymore. And, you know, he, he didn't want to raise a child in this world because of how horrible it is. And I think they both give incredible performances. But I think Morgan Freeman is absolutely stellar in this. I think it might be his best performance in his career. I, I call it his best performance. Better than Driving Miss Daisy, which he won the Oscar for. It's just really incredible. And... What's interesting about the difference between Somerset and Mills is obviously Somerset is much more intelligent, whereas you could say Mills is much more, you know, physically capable. 
and excited about the work. Like when there's a murder scene, Mills is like jazzed. You can see him like he's ladies and gentlemen, we have a homicide. Can't shut up. And then Mills and then Somerset's just like looking at him like, what did you just say? Someone, there's a dead body right here, bro. And so you can tell through their reactions to murder scenes how different personalities they have. And also, I think that there's a difference that I see in them where when the captain the captain tells Somerset, like, you are made for this work because he doesn't want him to retire. And he want, he's like, what, what are you, you going to do with that big do? brain of yours? Yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, this you're made for this work. This is like what you're meant to do. Whereas, like Somerset's a perfect, he's perfect for detective work. Whereas Mills, he's capable, but I don't think he's on the same level as Somerset in terms of investigation, in terms of detection, in terms of using your mind to get inside the mind of a killer. And so I think Mills wants to be a detective so badly, and he wants to be a hero as opposed to Somerset, who seems to be reluctant to use his powers in a way. No, yeah, I agree. Obviously, there are different kinds of people in every profession I think and I think they suit each other you know because there are moments where Mills says something that gets something going in in Somerset's mind and you wouldn't think that Mills would kind of have that intuition but he does have intuition it's just not as sharp as as Somerset who has clearly got a very high intellect and the thing with Somerset is we we get a great characterization of him in his opening where he's at the crime scene and he he asks the officer uh, where the murder was, this murder, this this not part of John Doe's murders, where he's like, did this? Did the kids see it? And then the officer's like, what does it matter if the kids saw it? Jeez, Somerset. We can't wait to get rid really of you. We're going to be glad when we get rid of you, Somerset. And, you know, Somerset has this different interpretation of justice. And it's really interesting because Somerset Mills and John Doe are all interested kind of in the same end goal, and that's just bringing justice to the world, but just in their own ways. And their their forms of justice are different, but I think obviously Somerset is the superior mind between Mills and him. But it's nothing, not that it's like nothing against Mills. He's just not a meathead, but he's just, he's, he feeds off his energy and yeah. his intuition versus his intellect. Yeah, he's, he, he's, he's very emotional. Whereas in Somerset is yelling at him at one point in the film, like, you have to control your emotions. We can't, we have to think clearly. And this is right before John Doe shows up in the stairwell to take photos of him. He's, he's like, you can't let your control your emotions control you. You have to think with the, with a clear mind to figure out what's going on. He says, uh, it's incredible seeing a man feeding off his emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Great characters. And we'll obviously talk about some more of them because what I, I think is the best way to go about with this episode going forward is after the intermission, I want to do each day what happens and do like a little mini episode on each day i guess you could say each little chapter sections between monday and sunday because that's how the movie's broken up yeah they, had, they had quite the week yeah they so had, they had quite the week there's a lot to talk about before but before we go to intermission how about we do these cool questions that you came up with i would love to All right. okay what sets seven apart from other police investigative films i think it's the screenplay it's absolutely genius. So many great pieces of dialogue, interesting characters. I mean, everything Somerset says is memorable. You could write a book with it. Everything John Doe says is fascinating. Mills is really interesting as well. Also, the fact that they were not even close to catching John Doe at the end of the film if he didn't turn himself in. Obviously, they knocked on his door with the information from the FBI. But after that, even after that, they would have had, they had no idea who he was. 
uh, the purpose. What were you doing? Biding your time. Biding your time. <laughs> waiting for to spring your trap. The purpose and intent of John Doe is so intriguing, horrific, but the purpose behind it is really what makes the character so strong. Uh, it's immersive, like we've been talking about, and again, I think it's the closest thing. The, the closest thing we've gotten to it is Prisoners and True Detective season one, also. But aside from that, it's just a special story. And you can also look at the Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker, inspired by John Doe. You know, purposely getting arrested by the police to finish his plan as well. I I picked um all the above writing the directing the performances of the actors but ultimately I think it's the tone of the film and the mood of the film that I was talking about earlier there's no other movie like it even in the genre all right where where do you rank seven in David Fincher's filmography I probably it's top two but I think for me personally I I I have Fight Club over it I'm not supposed to talk about it Um, (laughs) aside from that I think there's those two are just peak cinema is his best of his career I put Seven at number one. Oh, we all know. I think it's just a perfect movie. And he's, he's made so many great, great movies. But I don't know what it is about Seven. As crazy and fucked up as it is, it's, I've watched it more than any other Fincher movie. All right, next up. What awards should this film have been nominated for? It was only nominated for Best best Editing. It should Oscars. have won editing. Yeah, uh, It should have been nominated for Best Screenplay. should have been nominated for Best Director. The guy who directed Babe got a nomination for Best Director. <laughs> now that was a bad movie. The Talking Pig movie. But it's not Seven. Yeah, it was talk, Talking Farm Animals. Best Cinematography and also Best Actor or Supporting Actor, whichever one he would have campaigned for, for Morgan Freeman. I would have put sound design as well. Yeah, sound design I think it should have won the Oscar for. Incredible sound design. And director. Did you say director? Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. Of course. That was the whole bit about Babe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? All right, next up. I just said it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was literally 10 seconds ago. I'd be pretty sh- worried if you forgot it. Shelby, <laughs> Le- Shelby Leonard over here from Memento. <laughs> or Leonard Shelby. Leonard Shelby, yeah, yeah. Sorry. What is the most underrated aspect of the film. I think I'm going to go with attention to detail, set design, wardrobe, that kind of stuff. Great pick. I picked sound design. Like, we we, we both got into those earlier. We, yeah, we, we talked about them in remember? depth. I know it's on the tape. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up. What is the best shot in the movie? Really hard to pick one. This, and it can be a long take. It doesn't just have to be one this image. This movie's got some incredible cinematography. I think, you know, I, I picked three. I really couldn't choose between... The the low angle at the end of the movie where – so Mills shoots John Doe in the head and then he falls back. And then there's the shot you could say from John Doe's perspective of his dead body, the low angle looking up where some where Mills just has the gun like outstretched. And he's just shooting bullet, 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 crying. And then next to him uh, on his left to the right of the frame is Somerset with his back turned looking away and then the uh, giant tower in, in between in them. In between them, yeah. Really beautiful. Also, the reveal of greed on the carpet in Eli Gould's office. Really incredible moment of the film with the with the music too as well. And then I really love when they raid Victor's apartment and the camera is inside his bedroom looking at the door frame and the SWAT team pulls in and they're silhouetted by the lights and the camera's just tracking backwards into the room. And with the music, the boom, boom, like the brass and everything, absolutely incredible. It makes my hair stand every time. Love it. Beautiful shot. Great picks. And there's all the, um, what do you call them, air fresheners yeah. hanging in the ceiling. 
A lot, there's a lot of uh, smoke in the air in this movie. It's great. It adds great uh, lighting because the light catches mm-hmm. it. I picked. I picked just one because I'm deci- <laughs> I'm decisive. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Go I on. I picked uh, a long take. It's a shot of. It's our first shot. No, no, it's our, our the first. In the first spit it out, Anthony. I am, I don't, hold on, clearly it's, you can't get it up. it's the moment. Mr. Devi- decisive over here. It's a it's a shot where um a shot the uh, it's the first uh, um uh, <laughs> Jesus. It's when John Doe reveals himself at the police station, but it's right before he walks in. What happens is there's a great long tracking shot of Somerset and Mills. They get out of the car and they start walking along the sidewalk into the precinct, and then when they enter the precinct, a cab pulls into frame very close to the frame and then the door opens and uh, two feet step out of the cab the cab drives away and then the the feet start walking towards the police station and that's john doe detective Detective! i think you're looking for me i I love that shot it's an excellent reveal i think putting both the protagonist and the antagonist in the frame in the same shot was really genius really great Okay. Oh, and speaking of shots, I forgot to mention about the city in terms of cinematography. Fincher was really genius ta- in terms of not understanding how what city it is. Another way he hid re- recognizing the cities in these shots is he didn't do wide shots of cities. Like, he didn't do like landscape shots. What he did was, and there's a ton of them, you'll see a building or uh, there's that shot of Eli Gold's apartment. It's a big, tall building, and then it's framed with the city in the background, but it's all tight. You don't. You ne- the frames are always filled. You never see expansive landscape shots. So even when he shows buildings or skyscrapers or like other like homes, you can't even tell what city you're in because it's framed so tightly. It's kind of like the Matrix. They do a great job with that too. Yeah. So he de- he completely hid what cities they shot in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Next up, who is the best actor? I'm going Morgan Freeman on this. Great I think pick. he's terrific in this movie. He carries the film in a lot of ways. He really does. He does. I'm picking Kevin Spacey because when he shows up, the movie just completely just goes over the head, over the edge into 11. Mm-hmm. And it's, it becomes another movie. It goes from 7 to 11. Goes... <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. You could say that. That was a good dad joke. Oh, yeah. It's great. What is the best scene of acting in the movie? The climax is when John Doe has the upper hand. Stay out here, California, go away. It's the three of these highly talented actors in one of the most emotional moments in a movie scene of all time before when Mills is deciding whether or not to kill John Doe. It's just so tense. Geniusly acted by the three of them. It's just phenomenal, and what an ending. Yeah. I'm, I'm picking the scene before that. I'm picking the car ride to the desert. Because you have these three heavyweight actors with great dialogue. It's very quiet. And they're so close to each other. They're all sitting in the same car, just within a foot of each other. And I, th- I think that's fascinating. It's like them sitting this close to the most horrific serial killer imaginable. And the dialogue is really amazing. What they talk about is great. It's like a seven-minute scene, but it flies by, and it's super interesting. I think it's a great um, piece of writing. 
but the performance is really stellar. So I think that's my favorite piece of acting for the whole mo- for the whole movie. Okay, last one is, what is the most disturbing mo- moment in this movie filled with disturbing moments? There are quite a few, and I picked sixteen. Two, <laughs> two. <laughs> the first one is the title credits, super creepy, oh, yeah. of John Doe. And his day-to-day routine, cutting off his fingertips, writing in his journals, yeah. sewing pieces of paper together, just doing super creepy stuff. It's very airy and off-putting. Where do you rank this in terms of Fitcher's opening credits? Because he always does opening credits. I would say it's it might be the best one. Yeah. it's It just it's gets you in the mood of the movie. He's like, all right, this is where you're going to watch. It's going to be messed up. Mm-hmm. And it gets you in the headspace to be prepared for that. Yeah. I love this, and I love Zodiac with the envelopes journey. Yeah, that one's the, great, into too. Into the uh, journalism. And then the other one was an actual shot from the movie. It's when the SWAT team pulls the blanket off Victor in the sloth murder scene. Well, not murder scene, the sloth scene. It's messed up. It is shocking. It's messed up. Terrifying. I picked the lust murder scene as the most disturbing moment. It just makes my skin crawl and my stomach drops when I see it. You don't even see it, yeah. You don't even see it, but like just the – you see what's so great about – what's so brilliant about it is – he, he leaves it up to your imagination, and that's probably more disturbing than actually seeing the images, thinking about what actually happened. And that's – it's so, so disturbing. It always, like, shakes me to my core. Man, I think that's the most – could be up there with the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a movie. All right, how about we head to our intermission, and then afterwards we'll go through each day of the week in seven and go over what happens and recap and just keep talking about the characters and the, and the plot. Sounds wonderful. Great plan. Let's head on into our intermission, and we'll begin with our movie quotes competition. You ready, Anthony? I'm ready. All righty. Let me uh, scroll. I got a lot of notes. Hold on. Let me scroll down. Okay. He's a note taker. Ready? Ready. You're not a virgin. Now you got to die. Those are the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Is that Scream? Yep. Yes. Let's do. Let's do, yeah. Feel, feel, a little, little, feel a little woozy, yeah, my Billy. My mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Did you really call my parents? I'll be right back. Those are the rules, Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my quote. You know, we're here celebrating, but it's a shameful thing what I did. And I have a lot of making up to do to everyone. But second chances are rare, right? And that's worth celebrating. Thanks for staying. <laughs> that is Oscar Isaac, who plays St- Standard Gabriel in Drive. Correct the mundo. Great job. Thanks. All right, guess this movie release here. Seven psychopaths. <laughs> I'm going with 2011. 2012. Oh, damn. It's just off. Damn. It's a good movie from the uh, same writer director as um, In Bruges, Martin McDonnell. The uh, same director as uh, In Bruges. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my fans appreciate fun facts like that. Sorry, Team Anthony. Someone's unsubscribed. Team Anthony's irate right now. Got a hater right here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's my move for release here. Body of Lies. 2008. Yeah. Got it. Great job. Just after the that's the movie he did after the departed, right, Leo? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually the same director as that's uh, <laughs> Gladiator. What did it? Was it really Scott? Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> same director as Alien made Bloody of Lies. <laughs> movie pop quiz time. <laughs> this non silent film 
includes 88 minutes that are completely dialogue-free. I'm going to give you multiple choice answers. You pick The Deer Hunter, All Quiet on the Western Front, City Lights, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. 80 minutes? 88 minutes of one of those films is dialogue-free. I'm going. Hey, can you see the list again? Sure. Thanks. The Deer Hunter, All Quiet on the Western Front, City Lights, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm going City Lights. Eh. 2001 A Space Odyssey play up. 88 minutes? No dialogue. 88? Think about it. More than half, half that movie is no dialogue at all. I suppose, but man, yeah, I guess. That's quite a lot. I'm trying to think, but in between the sequences. There's so many sequences speaking. of no dialogue at yeah, all. I know. Even just I him know, on the no, spaceship. Oh, I, I'm an idiot. I am such a bonehead. I know, I know. I was thinking 88 minutes straight oh. without dialogue. <laughs> no, no. The way I, I, the way I pictured it was like 88 minutes straight without dialogue. Well, it's your but fault. But in total... Now it makes sense. Yeah, I'm a bonehead. It's okay, man. Yeah, you're right. It is okay. Team Anthony feels so let down. <laughs> They're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> Moving to Team James now. <laughs> Here's my quiz. What major action franchise did Oscar Isaac have a role in before he blew up as an actor? Major action movie franchise? Major action movie franchise. Before he blew up. Before so he before blew up. Drive. Before he was like... Big time, all over the place. Well, I know he's in Body of Lies. Not Body of Lies. It's a franchise. Franchise. What, yeah, but I'm just trying to think before that, what would he have been in? Doesn't have to have been before that. Could've well, been. what year would you consider he blew up as an actor? After Lewin Davis came out, he blew up. That was his first lead role. And then he started. And then he was in Star Wars Then he was that? in Star Wars. Then he was in a ton of stuff. Oscar but Lewin Davis was his first leading role. Oscar Isaac. I don't know. The Bourne franchise. Oh! <laughs> Forgot. Yeah, Bourne Legacy is in the opening. He's one of the, yeah, one of Treadstone agents. Yeah. Damn, that's a good one, man. Thanks. There's some great actors who play Treadstone agents in those movies. Like Clive oh, yeah, all the of first them. One, yeah, Carl Urban. Yeah, great great actors. And then they started using yeah, stunt Carl actor. Urban yeah, Carl Urban in Supremacy, Supremacy. is such awesome. a good villain. Awesome. I, we got to do Bourne, the Bourne we trilogy. Got, do, do you all, hey... Let us know in the comments. Do. do you want us to do Bourne? Of course I do. do I want Bourne. To do. I love those movies. I know. So much. I just watched all three of them um, a few weeks ago. I watched them back to back to back nights, and I was like, "These movies are still just awesome. So good, so damn good. Perfect movies." Okay, here's my. Wait, that was my quiz question. We have some uh, unsubscribes today. We got. We have a couple of good ones. <clears throat> so Anthony DeMeo, on our Lord of the Rings episode that we posted today. Um, what do you got to say, Anthony? Lord of the Rings, more like Lords of the Mispronunciation of a made-up <laughs> fantasy language with crazy names. How could you not remember the names of the dragons? Unsubscribed. JK, those names are insane. And then we have Bull Trout 11. If the Balrog, if the Balrog isn't in the top 10 of top uh, of the character ranking, unsubscribed. We also got a lot of hate for calling it a, a Balrag. It's a Balrog is <laughs> the real pronunciation. People are writing ball like a two word yeah, ball yeah, rag. Yeah. So yeah, that's we're boneheads. We're from Boston. And next, our Godfather Patreon shout out for today's episode is Dawson. We really appreciate your support, pal. Godfather to your patron. You have access to the Discord, obviously, like the ten dollars as well, and you get your own custom episode. What'd they pick? 
Pink Floyd's The Wall for his bonus review on Patreon. We actually haven't seen that film, and we do love Pink Floyd, but Dawson is a super fan of the band, and I'm very excited to watch that film and review it for you, pal. You've always been a longtime supporter of the show. You've always interacted with us on social media and on our Discord. You also helped us set up the Discord, which we really appreciate. We appreciate having you as part of our community. You are the best. So thanks so much for supporting the show. It allows us to do this full-time. We love you. Thank you so much. Now, on this day in film history, today is May 5th in 2000. Gladiator was released. In 2006, Mission Impossible 3 was released. In 2017, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was released. If you're listening to this podcast episode in 2023, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was released today. And also, happy birthday to Henry Cavill. Oh, happy Our birthday, guy, babe. guy, number one. What a stud. The jawline. I hope he's having a, I hope you're having a great day, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Our stream, well, my stream recommendation is a film that just got. Yeah, added, I'm, not, I'm not recommending this. Just got added to Amazon Prime. It is Zero Dark Thirty, directed by Catherine Bigelow, starring Jessica Chastain. Excellent movie. I actually do recommend this. It's a good movie. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah. All right, my recommendation is Poltergeist on HBO Max, the original. It is really amazing. Now, before we get into each day of what happens in the movie, I have one more topic I want to bring up to like analyze and that topic is what was john doe's original plan because obviously his chance his plan gets changed halfway through the movie smills and tracy are not supposed to be a part of his plan he's been planning this murder these murders for a long time for example this the victim victor the sloth victim he's been in there for an exact year there's no way he could have known Mills and Tracy were going to move to this city because Mills just got there. They just got there. He didn't even know they existed. Yeah, when you think about how long he's been planning this So what was his original plan to do with Envy and Wrath? Did he have someone else picked out? Did he have two other people that he was going to do a similar scenario where he was going to make someone lash out on Wrath against someone and kill them? It makes me wonder so much, but it also, I think, shows the genius and mastery of his horrific crimes and it's really just a a stroke of genius of meticulous planning of mayhem but also brilliant improvisation you know was john doe even going to originally die in his original plan was he was he gonna put himself into his plans make himself be envious or be envious of somebody else that would take a lot of other circumstances where he had to get to know somebody or, or understand someone so I think it's really fun to think about and talk about that. I I think people never bring it up is what was the original plan? That's a great point because there's no way he could have ever predicted that the detectives assigned to this case would even have significant others that he could enact this entire plan with. My guess is that he always planned to die because that would make him as he saw himself as a martyr. So he had to die. Maybe, maybe not. I'm just saying in terms of the way I interpret his plan is he has to be a martyr. Like he's doing this all out of sacrifice for the greater good of humanity in his eyes. And so perhaps he would have found another situation that he already had planned of creating the wrath and envy conflicts. So when he discovered Mills, 
after Mills revealed his name to him in the stairwell, discovered his wife, he's probably watching them. Then he probably was, got, because he gets pleasure from it, what he's doing, he, he's enjoying it. I think that he enjoyed the idea of doing it against his enemy. Great point. So I think that that's the spot where he probably starts to put himself into the story of his seven deadly sins where now he knows who Mills is. This is where he becomes envious of Mills' perfect life, or not perfect life, of no, of his normal life, of his wife, of having a wife, being able to have a real job because if he, maybe he didn't know who Mills was, what his name was at that point. He was just following them. Uh, maybe he did know Mills' name at that point. We don't know yet. And also maybe because they found his apartment and that's maybe maybe that's the moment that's point where after the chase sequence he decides that he's going to keep mills alive and he's going to make him a part of his plans because he could have easily just killed mills right there there's no reason not to kill him unless because he was clearly shooting to kill when somerset and mills show up at his door he's not shooting to scare them he's shooting to kill them because this is his home he needs to be able to at least if he can kill them Maybe get what he needs out of the apartment, get the money out from under the bed to get out of there to continue it's, his plans. It's self-preservation for him in that exactly. moment. Exactly. So he's not shooting to scare. He's shooting to kill for sure. Multiple times tries to kill his mills. So maybe it was after that point. So maybe it was the alleyway. After he breaks Mills' arm, get, hits him in the head with whatever he uses, the pipe or whatever, and then he's got the gun against Mills' head, and Mills says no. Maybe that's the point where he gets the inspiration. You know what? You're gonna be part of this too. That's definitely a, that's definitely a possibility. Or he could have already had it planned before they showed up. But why would he have wanted to kill them? Because he's been researching them. He took the photos of them. He obviously investigated who they were. And then maybe before they even showed up, he was already planning that as a possibility. Planning them to. He's planning the uh, envy wrath setup with Mills. Yeah, and maybe, Tracy. maybe. But I just think that if that it's was a great, it's a great idea though. It is great. So but maybe, I, I love the um, the idea of like what would he have done if it wasn't for Mills and Somerset. We can probably obviously assume he just had two random victims that were unrelated, just like many, pretty much all of the other victims, and they would have been chosen at random. People he was following and probably enacted some sort of schemes to make one choose wrath to kill somebody and envy. Maybe, like I said, maybe he wasn't even going to be envy. And their photos are probably in the apartment. Probably, yeah. It's really interesting, and I think people don't think about it. Great point. But also, even though seven people are killed, you can argue that there's an eighth person who's internally dead, and that's Mills at the mm -hmm. end of the movie. So he effectively, seven people get killed as the plan, and then an eighth, his life is ruined, and he even says uh, in the car, he says, or whatever, he's you'll live whatever life I've left you to live. Yeah. You'll, yeah. you'll, every time you look in the mirror, you'll think of me yeah. every for the rest of when, your life, yeah. whatever life I've left for you to live. I, I look at that as maybe Mills might even commit suicide at some point in his life. It's possible. Because like, thinking about like every time Mills wakes up and looks at himself in the mirror, like he's going to think of John Doe. He's going to think of Tracy. He'll be a shell of himself he'll, forever. He'll never be able to overcome. He'll, he'll never be able to move on from this. Yeah, but isn't that super interesting to think like what was John Doe's original plan before that's, Mills and Somerset? That's really amazing. Because he had it planned out. You don't plan... To have somebody in a bed for 365 days without having all seven murders yeah. planned. Only the I'm sure only the writer knows from just from writing it. He 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 probably knows what what the uh, real plan was. before he came up with that idea. Yeah. I, love about, I love it. I love it. It's a lot of fun to think. All about. right. So how about we'll go day by day, go through seven, and what happens in each day? 
Let's do it. Starting with Monday. So Monday is the day where they discover and investigate the obese man who is dead in spaghetti. They're trying to figure out what is Dead in spaghetti. <laughs> dead in spaghetti. <laughs> like was it murder? Uh, they don't know yet until they find, yes, the barbed wired ankles, but also it's not until they found out that it's not that he would, he, he, they asked the um, coroner, did he die by eating? The answer is yes and no. He passed out at one point and his stomach was stretched almost beyond possibility. And then the killer kicked him and th- and then he bur- his internals burst and that's what killed him. Yeah. So it was a yes and no, he died by eating. And I love, I love the mood of the scene because it happens before the opening credits. This is a great introduction to the world and the characters. We get Somerset and then Mills and we get the dynamic, dynamic between them. Uh, they don't like each other. This incredibly eerie scene. Moody lighting. I like how uh, the the doctor walks and he's like, ooh, very moody. Because uh, the power's out, so they have these just small lights set up around the, the apartment to give them some bit of light. I think it's really beautiful cinematography and sets the tone and style for what the rest of the film will look and feel like. Yeah, it's really great. And what I love about it is Somerset immediately, you know, he's the only one who sees the broader picture about these crimes right away. He's like, He's trying to explain to his captain, like, you don't do something like this without intense meaning. You don't make two trips to a store to get more food to continue this 12-hour torture of force-feeding, making a person eat spaghetti for 12 hours straight until they are about to die. This this is the beginning of something. Plus having no motive at all as, as exactly. well. And, you know, this is when Somerset, you know, he's going to retire in a week. He's like, I can't get involved with this. I, I, I'm i asking to be reassigned. Like, I can't be a part of this. And that's when Captain is like, you're stuck with this guy. I'm sorry. You're stuck with this obese man. And I'm, and that's just the end of it. And it is what it is. Don't get that big brain of yours cooking, Somerset. <laughs> <laughs> and he, so he, that's what I think was, sep- like, what I mentioned earlier, what separates Somerset from Mills is he is just a singular intellect in terms of, investigation and understanding killers and seeing the important things the important things and putting the, those pieces together where if Mills was alone in that crime scene interpreting it in a much different way just like how on Tuesday Mills is interpreting the crime scene of the defense attorney Eli Gould and greed is revealed on the carpet and Mills has no idea what it means, what's going on in this crime scene. He can't figure out. He's clearly overwhelmed, and the blood on the floor says greed, and also there's the blood eyes on the portrait of the lawyer's wife. Yeah, and also this is we get this reveal of the first seven deadly sin, even though it's the second murder that we see, and gluttony is revealed after this. Yeah, and so what happens is uh, Mills tells Somerset about it, and his curiosity is—I mean, the captain tells him about it, and his curiosity is piqued with the the plastic, those too. pieces of plastic which were fed to him, and that's when Somerset goes back to the original crime scene of the obese man, and he finds the scratch marks on the floor that were made from moving the fridge. Very, very intelligent thing for this horrific serial killer to do to leave a clue that only an intelligent man could find and, and figure out what it means. And behind the fridge that he moves, it says "gluttony" as well as. A quote from Milton's Paradise Lost. It's, I think it's interesting that he didn't make the first clue out in the open. And instead, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy are all uh, either written or obvious. Like, there's no need to write the wrath and the envy one because he, they speak it. He, he tells us in the audience and the pair of them 
So I, I think it was really interesting how the first one wasn't right up front in our face, especially for the detectives, yeah. what it was. I think he's just having fun and playing yeah. with them. And you, I think he's testing them. There's or, a tease, trying to appetizer. see how smart they actually are. Mm-hmm. And the quote from Paradise Lost says, Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to the light. Man, great. Great, great script. I know, it's just so genius. It's insane. And then let's see what else. Then we have the library. The library scene's on Tuesday. No, Yeah, 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 Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah. so Somerset... He now knows there's a connection to these old texts, so then he's going to the library to do all his research. It's a great sequence of montage um, where Box Orchestral Suite Number Three is playing "Air on the G String" Air on, the G, on that G String on that G String. <laughs> Roll it on imagine that G String. Imagine if he knew what G String meant today. <laughs> it still means that music, obviously. But <laughs> got my four by four by the river. i love the sequence i love the cinematography beautiful music and it's a great fincher has always been a great director of montages and research characters are always researching zodiac the whole movie is research typing in computers looking at documents there's so much boring things in his movies that he makes visually interesting. This is the first example of that. And now, so why is Somerset here? Even though he told the captain that, you know, you can expect five more of these. I can't get involved in this. He's writing up some notes and books and references for Mills to check out. So it's a very nice thing to do to try to get Mills on the right path. It's because he can't help it. Yeah. And he was he was made for this. Exactly. And the scene of him at the library, which is iconic, you know, he's like with those the security guards, he's like, gentlemen, the world of knowledge at your fingerprints and finger (laughs) tips. And what do you do all night? Play poker. (laughs) It's great. And uh, it's cross cut with Mills who is completely hopeless. He's watching the basketball game in his living room with the doors closed, just looking at the photos from the greed scene, trying to fathom motive in his mind or trying to figure something out, but there's clearly nothing there. Yeah, exactly. Drinking his PBR. And then he's making, but <laughs> Somerset is making those photocopies for Mills and leaves that envelope for him on the desk. Yeah, I think, and I think that Somerset, first of all, he writes in all caps like you. Yeah, I love, <laughs> I love all caps. <laughs> and... I think that he does it not so much to be nice, but I think he he leaves this these tips and these helpful the helpful guide for Mills because he can't help but get involved in an investigation of some kind. His curiosity is incredibly piqued, and so he's only got six days left. He doesn't have to go to the library and do any research, but he just can't stop himself from getting invested in doing work just keep working yeah you can't he, stop it. if he wanted to not be a part of this he wouldn't have gone back to the scene to discover yeah. the gluttony behind the fridge he would have never gone to the library yeah now wednesday opens up with a pretty good joke there's actually some pretty good jokes there's good movie. humor yeah and this is where mills he's trying to read these books he's like fucking dante and, <laughs> and the police yeah. and then one of his police officers brings him the cliff notes of the books that somerset recommended it, for those of you who this is pre-internet for everyone the cliff notes and spark notes were, were the best saved your life it was like a, when you had a book report yeah. due and you're like oh i forgot to read the book or yeah. just i didn't read the book it's they cliff notes and, and spark notes they summed an entire book or text into a readable number of pages with summaries and analysis so it's like cheating cheating notes it's kind of yeah. and teachers definitely knew if you did it because yeah. it's like every person came up with the same th- same thematic answers thematic <laughs> answers for for these stories and everything exactly 
And Huckleberry Finn is a <laughs> is a metaphor for. <laughs> oh, yeah, Tracy and Steve said that already. <laughs> Great. When, they're very helpful. Wednesday also has the office and phone exchange between Mills and Somerset, and the phone rings. It's a really funny moment, and Somerset's like, "It's part of the package deal. It comes package. with the office." Yeah. And it's Tracy, and Tracy invites Somerset to a late supper at their apartment that evening. In that case, I'd be delighted. And then dinner at the Mills is Wednesday night, and. I like this scene a lot. But we also, get a- we get a rundown of the seven deadly sins. Okay, yes. Yeah, so- and it's I love the set design of this this office. It feels like grungy and dirty. It's not clean. And I love the textures and palette of the color design and production design. Excellent job. Yeah. And then um, Dinner at the Mill, is, it's, a, it's really a, a necessary little scene or moment of positivity, even though there's some morbid things discussed after dinner, but still something light to get us prepared for the second half of this film. It's also character development. Mm-hmm. It's all character. I mean, the example of the, having the dogs is character development yeah. for the Millers. You know, they're from clearly from the South or somewhere um, in, in in maybe the middle of the country, Midwest or something they're like some, that. They're somewhere where there's a lot of nature. Tra- there's a yeah. lot of tractors, too. Yeah. She's like, I thought we moved out of here to get away, moved here to get away from tractors and stuff like that. I think that the main purpose of this scene, what it does really well is... So it has two purposes, to put Mills and Somerset together to go over the evidence, which they get the idea of going to see Eli Gould's wife after this. But before that, it's all about Tracy. It makes the audience learn who Tracy is and see the love between Tracy and Mills, high school sweethearts. They've been married for a long time, clearly devoted to each other. And so it, it's important to have this scene and the other one with Tracy and, Somer- and Somerset later on to, to to know Tracy so that when she is killed, we can really feel that weight. Yeah, technically, her and Somerset have three scenes together, even right. though she's not living for the third one. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> Gwyneth was not on set that day. <laughs> we also get some characterization of Mills in addition to, to Tracy. I think one of these little t- minor attention to detail is Somerset is drawn to, it looks like a war medal. On the headboard or the molding, it's a, the it's a, it looks like Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor, maybe, yeah. which makes it interesting to think that maybe is Mills a war hero or a veteran. I would say is maybe his father or grandfather, maybe. but it's just it's just right there, yeah. so it could be his because Mills multiple times says like, "You've seen my file. You have you seen my file? You've seen the things I've done." And Somerset's like, "Nope." So maybe there's something in his file about being uh, involved in a war hero. Great point. Point. Special ops, something. Mills origins. Maybe save somebody's life, you know, or, yeah. or something. But it clearly looks like a war medal, and I think it's probably his. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great point because that is he picks it up. It's on the mantelpiece of the fireplace, hundred mm-hmm. percent. And also the vibrating, vibrating shaking home. apartment. Yeah. It's super funny scene. Great moment. It's maybe the biggest laugh in the movie for sure. We actually know a little bit about that. One of one of the apartments that we lived in when we were in high school, a train drove by behind it. The tr- there are train tracks behind our backyard. The, the purple commuter rail that yeah, goes into yeah, Boston. The, the commuter rail. And uh, every time it drove by, the, you just heard. You, the house didn't shake, but... It was like you could feel it. Yeah, you could feel it, and it was very loud. Yeah, it was, you got used to it. You didn't Usually, even notice that. When people point. came over for the first time and it happened, people were like, is there a, is there a train right there? Yeah, it's in the backyard. It's no yeah. big deal. Yeah. But so yeah, it always reminds me of that house we lived in. But after dinner, Mills and Somerset are going over the evidence of the crime scenes with photographs and they're talking about, you know, the, the messages that are being left and you know, the evidence for Eli Gould's situation is horrible where he was given a choice where he had to cut off one pound of flesh, no more, no less, no cartilage, no bone, no more, lo- no no less. Disgusting. What what would you pick? 
uh, part, a body part, probably love handle, just like Eli Gould tries. You, you, but oh man, what would you pick? I would go. Well, I mean, you you have you run the risk of hitting vital organs. You love handle. That's what he did. Yeah, I know, but uh, yeah, that's exactly what he did. I mean, wh- I guess I'd go for like man, what's back there? Kidneys, but your, your stomach lining, your liver, kidney. Well, your liver's up front. It's on the side a little bit. But it's no, your liver's like right here. All right, well, not the liver. My bad. Yeah. But stomach lining, intestines. Either way, it's no bueno. I'd go with I don't know, like a butt cheek. Either a butt cheek, either a whole glute, or like a calf. Oh, man. But could you ever do that? That's the thing. I don't know. That's the problem. Oh, it's gross to think about. <laughs> but then they're talking more about the the killer. They don't know who it is. They There's no fingerprints anywhere. The victims are all unrelated. He's using sins as a teaching tool for his medieval servants. Ser- sermons. And there's one little anecdote that's, that's pretty her- terrible to hear. Morgan Freeman say that who says like uh, you never cry for help you always yell fire no one answers to help it's it's pretty disturbing you know and then they get it the shows idea. it's it, it ties to John John Doe's ideas about worldwide apathy oh yeah true yeah sorry that's you what know, it's an important it actually is relevant yeah sorry I forgot how to how it related contextually yeah. anyways <laughs> but then they get the idea to go interrogate Miss Gould, who's in witness protection program right now. Not so much interrogate, see if she, well, I mean, saw, <laughs> if she can recognize something. Where were you? Where were the other drugs? Where's Rachel? <laughs> Swear to me. Why'd you kill your husband? <laughs> because her eyes have the circles of, with blood around them. And so they're giving her the photos of the crime scene of Sorry. Eli Gould's office. And she notices that the painting's upside down, and then they go to the, the office and then with forensics, they discover that with another person's handprints or hands, the John Doe wrote, help me with fingerprints and palm prints. It's, that's a really like disturbing moment. Like It makes your stomach drop when you saw that. Another great reveal because Mills is just speaking to Somerset Soft. He's like, honestly, have you, you ever seen, seen anything, anything like, like this? And then they show what's on the wall yeah waiting to sh- waiting to reveal it you get the reaction first and then you get the thing they're looking at and then they're going to get the f- the fingerprints run at forensics and they fall asleep on the couch and then thursday morning happens this is when they wake up on the couch wake up lover twins <laughs> <laughs> they got a match on the fingerprints from this wall this guy named victor he is a, p- a drug dealer a pedophile he's been arrested a few times schizophrenic and the police are overconfident they're like oh we're gonna go get some let's go and captain's sure they have their guy but mills and somerset aren't sold they're like this doesn't seem like our guy our killer had seemed to have a lot more purpose than this and then they have the great the great police raid of this moment you know i don't even notice until like seeing this film multiple times but uh, and there's there's a couple of shots where there's lots of sunlight this is an example of there's sunlight because there's only you can't control the weather when you film a movie and you only have so many hours in the day to get shots. But, there's no rain. Yeah. But no, there's rain. Is it? Oh, yeah. Outside. So inside the car when they're talking, but he's telling the story of the, the yeah, other it's cop. Pouring, yeah, yeah. It's pouring all over the car, but there's sun all over. And they clearly couldn't, like, get a dick cloudy day for this. And they could. Sometimes it rains with sun. I know. But I know. But I'm I saying <laughs> the re- the movie's supposed to have a dark mood. Yeah. I'm talking about there shouldn't be sun. But you don't, you, I, you don't really notice it as an audience member because you're so invested. And also the rain is very distracting as well. The police raid is great. Do you ever notice that the guy from Scrubs is the, oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, guy with the yeah. shotgun? He's in, oh, yeah, always. In, in the helicopter. I can't remember as well. his name from Scrubs. Me neither. Um, it's the police raid, and they discover Victor, the victim, who has sloth as his sin. And 
the most disturbing moment probably is when they lift the blanket up after they're in their in their apartment and then all the Christmas tree air fresheners are in the in the room. So disturbing. This person's been there for 365 days. There's a stack of photos that it doesn't seem like John Doe took a photo every day, but he took maybe a photo a week. And it goes back to the original photo of the first day he was there, dated exactly a year from that moment, that day. Yeah, he now has like brain damage. He's, he's barely been alive through the use of antibiotics and he's starved to skeletal size. And it's just really disturbing, and what makes it worse is when the doctor tells him, like, he's suffered more than anyone I've ever seen in my life, and he still has hell to go through. And it's just like, wow, holy... He has hell to look forward to. Yeah. Unbelievable. He's like, like he, he, his brain is mush, and he chewed off his to- own tongue, year, like, months ago. He would die of shock if she shined a light in his eyes. He eventually does succumb to his injuries in the novelization of the movie as well. And also, this is the location where... The photographer comes, and Mills gets upset in the hallway, yelling at him. And that's when Somerset's like, it's impressive to see a man fading off his emotions. Surprise, you can spell! (laughs) (laughs) And then also at the end of this day, at the end of Thursday, Tracy calls Somerset at home and asks to meet. And also, there there is a connection between Alan and Eli Gould. I believe this is in the novelization form where... He was his attorney. He was his attorney. Yeah. Is it in the movie at all? Yeah, it's in the yeah, movie. It's, okay, so yeah. it's in the movie. Yeah. And that's how we can assume John Doe discovered Alan, Victor Allen, is through Eli Gould. Or other way around. Or other way around. Yeah, either one. It's probably he's going for the defense lawyer. He's like, who would he represent? Yeah. Just nothing but scum. Yeah. He probably read about a story of him getting Victor off for... Um, Pedophile crime. So two, is my guess. the two only people, victims who that we know are, are related. related or yeah. have a connection. And then we have Friday, and the first scene of Friday is the diner where Tracy and Somerset are, and they have the conversation where Tracy um, confesses that she's pregnant, but also that she's very unhappy. And it, it seems like she's feeling out Somerset whether or not it would be a good idea or whether he would recommend keeping the child, especially in a place where she's unhappy in a world like this. But also you can see that you know, Somerset, if he had kept his child and had not basically talked his ex into and just wearing her down to to agreeing to the abortion, you can say, you can definitely guess that if he had his child, he probably would be a a much kinder and more hopeful man. Probably, if he had that love in his life. Yeah, because, because you could say that the regret of ruining that relationship and preventing his child from being born left him with so much emptiness that absolutely can 100% fuel the nihilism that he feels. People who spend a significant amount of time with me find me disagreeable. disagreeable. Um, (laughs) uh, Somerset is positive that he made the right decision, but not a day passes where he wishes he didn't, where he wishes he made a different choice. And so he says, you know, if you decide to keep it, you spoil that kid every chance you get. And it's a really emotional moment. And then right after that, it alludes to what I just said because he says if you don't keep it, don't ever tell Mills about it because he knows the pain of uh, a, your child not being born and how it's affected him so negatively. And so that's a revealing moment for for Somerset showing one of the reasons why he feels – why he is the way he, he is. Tells him not to, yeah, that's yeah. why he says not to tell Mills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have – a great shot, I think, one of the best in the movie, is the chalkboard of the seven deadly oh, yeah. sins Iconic. and three are crossed off. 
And they're just waiting for these other ones to happen. They have no leads at all. They don't know what they're going to do. They have, you know, this tenant who, you know, it's, just, it's a disturbing thing where it's like the best tenant that the, the landlord ever have. <laughs> Pen, a paralyzed tenant with no tongue who pays the rent on time. Um, and, you know, Mills is constantly going off about how this guy's a lunatic. And I think Somerset, Somerset says a line like it's dismissive to call him a lunatic. We have to understand this guy, how he operates and thinks, and he's different than someone who's just crazy. Because everything he's beginning, Somerset's beginning to understand how meticulously everything was planned because they got to Victor's apartment one year on the dot to the day that Victor was first there. And so that's so revealing to Somerset to be like, this is not just some crazy killer. This guy has a whole project planned, and we're just a part of it. So... Uh, it's a lot more. It's a lot bigger and more intense than they assume. Just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. Wait, library card? Yeah, ding, that's, ding, ding, that's ding. what triggers. That's one of those lines that Mill says that gets inspiration inside Somerset's head. Then they meet up with his buddy from the bureau at the pizza shop. Sticky must, man must have had fifty health violations here last time they got raided. <laughs> Talk about the pizza shop. And then after they give this guy money in the barber shop. Somerset's explaining to Mills that the FBI monitors people's reading habits. Specific books are flagged depending on the topic and author. And the FBI keeps track of people who take these books out. And that's when they get the list of people and names. And they get the list of the person, Jonathan Doe. Best, And then we have them arriving at their apartment, that, that person's apartment. Yeah, but that was just a precursor for what... Uh they're doing now listening to everything and recording everything we look that's and, what I, and listen to all of our phone calls think about that with your phone yeah there's a reason why when you pull up instagram something you just talked about pulls up for an ad now they're outside of john doe's apartment legally they need a reason to be there in terms of if they want to go inside but they can knock on the door to see if he wants to talk to them that's what they're trying to do is see if he'll open but I think this leads to what might be the best foot chase I've ever seen in a movie of all time, which is when John Doe is shocked to see them in his hallway and opens fire on them and, and the chase uh, commences. It's really terrific. Also, great gunfighting as well. Uh, terrific, like close quarters, like around the corner, fear, you know. And Brad Pitt's great when he's ducking around a corner and looking out a window. He looks terrified to get shot. Like in the bathroom, he's like... He's hesitating to look out there because he knows he's in danger and he's vulnerable, and rightfully so because John Doe fires on him right immediately. And one of my fa- my second favorite shot of the movie, it almost made my number one shot, but it's the shot of uh, when Brad Pitt's going down the ladder outside on the fire escape, and he just he wraps around the ladder. It's from above, bird's eye view, and there's just water dripping down on downwards. It's just a beautiful shot. And there's just like running on top of cars, cars like crashing, all sorts of mayhem happening. It's terrific. We also see John Doe limping after he falls that height from jumping down that balcony inside that theater. It's just filled with intensity, great action, great blocking, and a terrific score to go with it. And uh, John Doe breaks Mill's arm. And actually, fortunately, it was in the script because – uh, Brad Pitt broke his arm really earlier, early in production. That's why a lot of this film, if you watch his left hand, he hides it as often as possible. Like, in they have weird things like when him and Mills are in the office, he's got his long sleeve shirt is covered like up to his hand, and his watch is on the outside of his shirt and like tied it tight so that like you can't see the cast inside the sleeve of his dress shirt. 
So whenever you watch it, if you don't see Brad Pitt's armor, if it's like behind his back or something, it's because he had a cast on. And he does a lot of things with his right hand in the movie that you don't notice at all. Until even you, a righty, even yeah. if you're right-handed, it would be yeah. odd. It would be like he's like reaching across his body to grab something with his right hand. And so when you look at that, you're like, oh, he's, he's keeping his left arm down to hide that cast. And just doing most of his action right-handed. Even when he's got his gun, he's got like his right arm is like in his armpit, like mm-hmm. while he's holding his gun, like yeah. walking around trying to find John Doe. They did a great job of hiding it. Yeah, they really did. And then after John Doe gets away, Somerset and Mills are outside of John Doe's door, part of his apartment, and they can't just go in. They need a reason. What they, the way they got this information, they can't use to prosecute because it was secret. It was information from the FBI, which illegally was, obtained. Ill, yeah, yeah, basically illegally obtained. You know, Somerset's like, we need a reason to knock on this door. We can't prosecute if we do this. And then I was like, you're right, you're right, you're right. When you're right, you're right. You're right. He kicks it down. Well, I guess no point no in arguing, arguing anymore, anymore. unless get... you can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get in there. He's like, oh, you son of a bitch, you dumb. Oh, my God. And walking, How much money we got left? <laughs> walking through John Doe's apartment, the production design, just amazing work. It's so messed up. There's so many things in the apartment. I made I made a list of some great things yeah, for attention it. to detail. So the neon red cross that's over his bed, dozens of bottles of empty bottles of aspirin, framed trophies from his murder. So he's got like these crazy... Like framed drawers that, like inside, one of them has the hand from yeah, Eli Gould, yeah. and some other like trophies from his murders. Um, the leather custom receipt, which they—that's what leads them to that Wild Bill's Wild Bill's leather shop with the guy who makes the custom weird stuff. The photo red room in his bathroom, where they find the the photos of of dark the murders, the dark room, the dark room, and also the fi- they find the photos of the murders that John Doe takes, and also the photos of Mills and Somerset. His little library and all those journals uh, is about two thousand notebooks, each one two hundred fifty pages, and also they don't find a single fingerprint in Not the entire one. apartment. You're right. I don't believe you. Keep looking. <laughs> also, the walls are black. Everything's been painted black, and it makes you wonder how long John Doe has been living there. Because clearly, I don't know if the landlord's walked into that place. <laughs> and he's like broke. He's tore down walls and demoed yeah. walls. He's definitely altered the physical makeup of the apartment. I'm sure apartment complexes like that, landlords don't even walk in as long as rent's getting paid and there are no issues. You probably saw like a five-year lease or something. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So it's it makes you wonder. Like He's probably been there for years and years and years. And it's just so disturbing walking through this place like... Like what the mind of a serial killer like this would what they would live like it's just man and creepy they, crawly and then some of the photos are of this blonde woman who we can assume will be one of the next victims or the next victim that he's been following and then also John Doe calls them such a great little conversation he's like I admire you I don't know how you found me but you can imagine my surprise and he's like I've had to make some rearrangements with my plan. But, you know, we'll, we'll be in contact soon. You have my information. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah can't yeah. wait. Yeah, good job, guys. It's it's crazy. And what's so shocking is uh, in, in Spacey's performance, it's so calm in his demeanor and emotionless. But also he's it's soft-spoken. And he sounds, he sounds pleasant in a way. You know what I mean? And it's not what you expected. It's just a really – it's a really brilliant performance. And – there's just something about the voice, that lack of – there's that lack of connection, like human connection in the way he speaks. 
And it's it's just so it makes it even more disturbing. Now Saturday opens up at Wild Bill's Leather, the custom job. They're like, you made this for him, and then they go to that underground brothel, and we find the crime scene and murder scene for the sin of lust with the prostitute who's been murdered and killed by the man who was forced to use that knife strap on to penetrate her with the gun in his throat that was being held by John Doe. And again, we get more red, red lighting everywhere. The loud music, it's so chaotic of a scene. You can barely hear what's going on. And the music the music choice is great because it's like kind of disturbing music. It's kind of scary music. And then, like we said earlier, you don't see the actual crime happening. You, you barely see the dead body, but you just see the reactions of the other characters, especially the man who was the other victim and how he, he's hyperventilating and... He's shaking in the interrogation room, just like trembling and having a terrible panic attack just because of what he was put through by this man. And then, you know, obviously the murder of the woman was horrific. And this guy is probably going to be messed up for the rest of his life. But the interrogation sequence is great because we have Somerset interrogating him. And then Mills is interrogating the owner and proprietor of the brothel. He's like, is he sitting with a bag? He's like, Every guy who comes in here's got a bag. Some people got suitcases full of stuff. <laughs> it also shows by the end of the um, both interviews, we get a shot of Mills and Somerset just sitting, just standing in the room or sitting in the room. And it shows truly how truly lost they are. They have no idea where to go from here. They don't have any leads. They're further from catching this guy than they ever were. And it's, they're om- and it's almost the sixth day. And then they go to a bar and they're having that conversation. You know, Somerset's like, this isn't going to have a happy ending. And foreshadow. You know, he he's not the devil, he's just a man. They're trying to remember that and everything. But you know, it's, it's they need some of this they need to let loose a little bit, have a couple of beers because it's such a traumatizing week and day so far. And Somerset has, says a great line where he says, I can't live in a place that embraces apathy as a virtue. It's a great conversation between the two of them to show the conflict, the conflicting ideologies they both have. Somerset, you know, this veteran, he's been worn down by the harsh world he's lived in. He thinks that things are getting worse than ever, whereas Mills thinks that they can make a real difference in the world. They can be heroes and they can save people. And Somerset views that as uh, immature. And both characters have ending sequences where Mills hugs his wife and tells her he loves her so much, like so, so much, and kisses her as they get in bed. And then also Somerset throws his metronome across the room and then starts throwing his knife at his dartboard, and he gets a bullseye first try. His order has been thrown into chaos. Mm -hmm. The order of the metronome is gone. Then we have Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, The final day of the film. Opens up with Pride, the the next murder of the woman who had sleeping pills glued to one hand and a phone glued to the other. Call for help and you'll live, but you'll be disfigured. And her nose had been cut off very recently. And also Somerset has decided to stay on the case until it is done, which means he's not going to retire. Not yet. Not yet. And then that's the long tape of the cab pulling up and the man who steps out covered in blood screaming, Detective! Detective! You're looking for me. And uh, we get John Doe, the real John Doe in the flesh. He's been arrested 
Uh, covered in blood. They're trying to figure out who he is. He cuts the skin off his fingertips. It's such a genius scene. Like he, the like a serial killer just walks into the police station covered in blood. It's like it's unbelievable. Like asking to be arrested. Yeah. It's insane. Cuts the skin off his fingertips. His bank account is virtually untraceable. Is opened up with just cash. Independently wealthy, well educated, totally insane. His name is John Doe by choice, and he's going to court right now. They're gonna prosecute him like that day. Yeah, and I'm so curious about like where this guy came from, how he changed, how, like how he got all of his documents in order. Where they don't even know who he was before he was John Doe, because he's clearly he's been playing this for so long. Maybe most of his life he's been planning this. You could think that. Since decade, was, probably. Since he was maybe in his teenage years, like late teens, he might have been planning this entire thing. It's possible. But, you know, Somerset and Mills, they're like, he's not done. This is He wouldn't just turn himself in, not finish. He's only got five of his murders done. For the first time, you and I are in total agreement. And then we find out from his lawyer that there are two more bodies hidden, and he will take Mills and Somerset, only Mills and Somerset, to see them at 6 p.m. that day. If they do not accept, he will plead insanity on all, on all counts and will likely get insanity. And if you do accept, he will sign a full confession right there. The fact that you're blackmailing us is admissible. He wants to remind you that my client <laughs> wants to remind you that uh, um, and they discover that his fingers, his hands had the blood of John Doe, the blood of the victim from Pride, and also the blood of an unidentified third party. And then we get a great montage prepping for this journey. It's terrifying. The music, microwave, microphones, <laughs> microwaves, microwave. If I, if I shave, an, if I if I shave a nipple off, does that count as workers' Workman's comp? comp. <laughs> I love I it. Suppose so. Yeah, and then but just the the music's just building and building, and then we get to that amazing scene of the trio in the car, the three musketeers in the car, and then we get so much more about John Doe's motivations, his ideologies, his beliefs. Revealing why he's doing what he's doing while he's being challenged by both Mills and Somerset. And Mills and Somerset, they have very, you know, they're very different minds and very different men. And so I, I enjoy seeing how both of them interrogate John Doe, how they both kind of attack him in different ways, where Mills is degrading him, saying, like, how, do you know how crazy you are? Whereas Somerset is like, who are you? He, he asks this great question. Um, he's like, glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> he, he basically asks for someone who was chosen for this, who didn't want this, this this duty. It seems strange that you would enjoy it so much. And like you said earlier, there's a moment where John Doe, his face is like, for a moment, he's just like, it's oh shit, it's a good point. And then he's like, then he's like, well, it's not, it's it, it's no different from. I I doubt I would enjoy it any more than. Detective Mills would enjoy time alone in a room without windows with me. That hurts my feelings, John. There's nothing wrong with a man taking pleasure in his work. Yeah. You know, he, and I like how Somerset asks, like, who are you, John? And he's like, who I am means no absolutely nothing. I'm not special. My work is special. You can't see the whole complete act yet, but when it's finished, it's going to be absolutely incredible. It's really going to be something. And, you know, they're talking about why these people and – like, why would you kill these innocent people? And that in John Doe, he's like, innocent, innocent people. You know, he's describing these victims and he says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner and every, every day in every home and we tolerate it. What I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed forever. So he's punishing 
sin, basically. Yeah, just the idea of sin in general. Very Old Testament. Yeah. It's very extreme, obviously. And I think he has a lot in, sim- in common with Somerset looking at the world nihilistically, whereas Somerset sees nothing worth saving until the end of this movie where he changes his mind. But I think that he and John both share kind of similar viewpoints on humanity. Well, they, all three of them want justice, and this is John Doe's idea of justice in the world. And, you know, his, his plan, he thinks, is going to save humanity, you could you could say. He yeah. thinks he's like an he thinks agent. Yeah. He thinks he's an agent for God. He's, he thinks he's a martyr. That's his whole... He's a martyr for the good of God. The Lord works to, in yeah. mysterious ways. Yeah. You know, he thinks... He even has the cross above his bed, you know? Yeah. He th- he's like an angel of death. Angel and of death, yeah, that's, I like it's that. It's so interesting because, and then he says the lines like he's bragging, he's like, the only reason I'm here right now is because I wanted to be here, and you're only alive because I didn't kill you. And so for the rest of your life, you'll have to th- think of that every time you look in the mirror for what life I've allowed for you to have. Yeah, it's it's a, it's such a disturbing line because the first time you see it, doesn't really you don't really fully grasp it, but then obviously when you learn what John did, it makes it so much more powerful upon repeat viewings when you hear that line. Yeah, and we know what happens next. They're in the desert. They pull over. Mills and Somerset and John Doe are walking out to where these bodies supposedly are. Then this van pulls up. Very smart by John to separate them from where the van will be on the road. Exactly. He knows exactly what he's doing. Somerset goes to check the van. Some guy is driving it. A package. He's got a package for David, Detective David Mills. And he opens it, and we don't see it. But it's we Tracy's, don't need to. Tracy's head. Yeah. And then John Doe is talking to Mills, telling him how he tried to play house. He became envious of his normal life, and it didn't work out. And it's a horrific moment. And then Somerset comes to try to stop Mills from killing John Doe because if John, if you kill him, John Doe wins. It's a messed up situation. It's It really is one of the greatest endings ever. It's so well acted by Brad Pitt especially. Because it's like, that's tough. That's a tough scene to play to make it believable. And also the directing is really strong. What David Fincher does in this moment. During the sequence, uh, when Somerset has returned, and it's the three of them, the camera's cutting back and forth, and we're waiting to see what's going to happen. But the way that Fincher sets the shots up is obviously, he is a very he's always famous for having a very controlled camera. But in these three shots, he has... Two controlled camera angles and then one handheld angle. So so for John Doe and Somerset, cameras are static and solid. Whereas for Mills, the camera is handheld and shaky. It's a great translation translation of the chaos happening within that character, within that within his mind, and the the horrible act he's coming closer to. And then when you cut that together, you see static, static, shaky, static, static, shaky. It makes you feel exactly what these characters are feeling. And then he puts you in Mills' head by just a quick flash frame, just a frame of Tracy's head and face alive. Tracy's face. (laughs) Tracy's face. (laughs) Because that's all that Mills has to think about her for a split second. He's like, no, there's no way I can let this guy live. Yeah. And I'm sure most people do the same thing. Exactly. Great, great scene. It's horrific, you know. If you, if you kill him, he wins, and everything he does will be remembered and studied forever. But if you don't kill him, that won't happen. But how could you let him live? Exactly. I don't think I could let him live. It's one of the best endings to a movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It's actually the reason why Brad Pitt signed on, and he said that he would only do the movie if this was the ending they were going to film. 
because they the studio wanted the safe ending. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, such a good movie. Man, <sighs> whew. what a I, I knew we'd hit about two hours on that. Yeah, I love this movie. It's really such an impressive work of filmmaking and acting. It's really second to none. It's it's one of the best ever done. I think it absolutely deserves to be in the top 100 of films ever made in the world history. Want to do in the world history? history. Do you want to do some trivia? Absolutely. Let's do some trivia. Denzel Washington actually turned down the part of Mills that went to Brad Pitt, telling Entertainment Weekly that the film was too dark and evil. Denzel Washington later regretted his decision upon seeing a screening. I'm sure he would have done a great job. As preparation for his traumatic scene in the interrogation room, Leland Orser would breathe in and out rapidly so that his body would be overly saturated with oxygen, giving him the ability to hyperventilate. He also did not sleep for a few days in order to achieve his character's disoriented look. All of John Doe's journals were real and written for the film. They took two months to complete and cost $15,000. According to Morgan Freeman, two months is about the time it would take the police to read all the books in the film. David Fincher said that he wanted someone who was incredibly skinny to play Victor. When he found Michael Reed McKay, he weighed 96 pounds. Fincher immediately gave him the part and jokingly told him to lose some more weight. Much to his surprise, McKay actually did lose another six pounds, so he was only 90 pounds when they filmed. When Mills and Somerset go to Wild Bill's leather store looking for information about John Doe, their clerk says that Doe had a limp. Behind them, outside the store, a man is limping and shown watching the detectives. The film's brooding, dark look was achieved through a chemical process called bleach bypass. This, What this does is it prevents the silver in the film stock from being removed, which deepens the dark contrasts and shadows of the image and also desaturates the image as well. That wraps our episode on 7. I'm sure we'll revisit it at some point in a future episode, but we were so excited to finally do an entire episode devoted to this masterpiece in filmmaking. Really hope you enjoyed as much as we do. Thanks so much for tuning in around the world. Take care, everyone. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.